And here we go. Um, it was truly a masterpiece. I don't know about all that. Ugh, absolutely the worst movie ever. Hands down, bar none, the greatest action spectacular ever. Well, uh, the other one just stuck them up. Are you asking me? I promise I'm not going to sing this time around. Welcome to Don't Be Crazy Podcast. I'm Justin Cavender. With me, as always, is Mr. Zachary Rancourt. Here we discuss and dissect what makes a film absolutely amazing or just pure rubbish. All that we ask of each other is don't be crazy. Don't be crazy, Zach. Now this is pod racing. <laughs> yeah. That was the best line in Phantom Menace. The best. I don't know, I don't know about all that. <laughs> actually, the only things from Phantom Menace that I liked were Darth Maul and pod racing. That was it, actually. Everything else can go in the trash. Wow. I know, right? I didn't like it that much. Yeah. Better than, better than episode two. <laughs> that's true. Episode two was really bad. Sand. Uh, it's my only weakness. <laughs> it's coarse and it gets everywhere. Uh, yeah. it's, it's pretty garbage. But yeah, anyways. Uh, hey, man. How are you? I'm good. No complaints. Good. Good to hear. Uh, you, you're learning Japanese? Uh, I am. I am. Yeah. Took uh, my first class last night. Two, it's uh, every week for like a year. It's two hours a week. Nice. That's yeah. really cool. That is uh, that's good. You're going to be you're going to be fluent in no time. Yeah, I'm excited. I am excited for you. And that's really great. But uh, but yeah, everything's good o- over here. The sun is starting to peak a little bit and it's starting to be mid June ish. So we'll see kind of what happens. But uh, your birthday's coming up kind of soon, too. Yeah. At the time of this recording, only 21 more days. Wow. But who's counting, right? Right. <laughs> I normally do, but I know. this year I've just been too too busy to really care. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a it's a special day for you, so that's what we'll treat it as. But yeah, um, but yeah, absolutely. man, love birthdays. Me too. Absolutely, they are the best. So, what have you been watching? So i I've been really busy lately with work and other things. And uh, this last weekend it was raining, so I hiked. But I decided I'm going to do a whole bunch of movies and it was great. So I watched Blast from the Past. I watched Bowfinger. That was the first time I'd ever seen Bowfinger. It was funny. Chubby Rain. Uh, I watched Lethal Weapon 1 and 2. Um, Invincible. The entire eight episodes of that animated uh, comic book, adult comic book series, which was awesome. And I was hooked. I watched Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone or the Philosopher's Stone, if you are in the UK. European Vacation and Scream. European Vacation? Mm-hmm. That movie sucks. <laughs> Big, Big Ben, Parliament. <laughs> yeah. I like Big it. Big Ben, Parliament. I don't think it's bad. But oh, I, my God. You know, what's I hate so, that movie. you know what's so funny? So June 1st came around, and all these movies are now available on HBO, and I think I spoke about this uh, before, but yeah, because I was really jonesing to watch Lethal Weapon uh, a couple weeks ago, and I almost bought the entire four-pack. And then all four of them appeared on HBO Max. And then same thing with every Harry Potter film. And same thing with like, what else did they add on there? Uh, Clueless. Big Lebowski. Yeah, Big Lebowski is now on Netflix. I'm like, motherfucker. So yeah, they keep putting all these movies that I want to watch, but not Falling Down. I'm still waiting for Falling Down, damn it. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. I know. But uh, yeah, I watched quite a bit. I was a busy little beat and I've been playing a lot of Call of Duty Warzone. So uh, yeah, it's been it's been pretty cool. But um, what about you? Um, yeah, so aside from Japanese class, where it's like, Kanbanwa, Watashiwa, Justin Des. Okay. Goro, Shiku. 
That means good evening. My name is Justin. Uh, pleased to meet you. Wow. That was impressive. Yeah. Ohio Gazimas is good morning. Konnichiwa is kind of like the the in between, like 10 to 5 kind of thing. And then Kambawa is good evening. Okay. I dig yeah. it. You can be my tour guide when I go to Japan. Sure. <laughs> my translator. I can tell everyone. <laughs> Like, hi, <laughs> my name's Justin, please meet you. <laughs> Sayonara, see you we, later. We need directions. Hi, my name's Justin, please meet you. <laughs> uh, Donde esta bibliotech? <laughs> there you go. Easy peasy. Uh, I've been watching Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, if you listen to the Escape Pod, you know that we're watching those uh, every week and sort of reviewing each episode as they aired. And uh, it's been brutal, but... Uh, we're just uh, moving right along. I think uh, episode 15 is this week. So there is that. Uh, I watched Sex Drive for the, like, the upteenth time. I love that movie. <laughs> I think it's so funny. And then uh, I beat uh, The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild on Nintendo Switch. Ooh. And Over you, and done with. And you, hate it, you hated every minute of it? Oh, a lot of minutes <laughs> of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, you know, I do want to play it because I'm a big Zelda fan. So that is, uh, it's too bad that you didn't like it that much. But I get it. I totally understand pass i'm over it so one one quick thing i wanted to say uh last week we did uh, welcome to the dollhouse for that episode and i gave it a d i had i had a weird week because i kept thinking about the movie and much like vampire's kiss which i thought was so bad i kept wondering why it was sticking in my mind for so long and then i kind of just realized maybe that is a hallmark of of a movie that uh is a lot better than you think And so, I mean, I totally understand where you were coming from, from from your standpoint for that film. So I feel like I was a little too harsh on it. Um, So I'm going to raise my ranking up a bit to like a C plus because I I understand the merit of it and I I can see how it can be a good film. For me, it just didn't hit all those those things. But uh, but yeah, I definitely wanted to raise that up a little bit. So that's interesting. I think um, I think one of the important takeaways and we didn't we talked about it after the show, but not on the show, but. Um, you know, you were offended by the vocabulary that was used in that movie. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing. You know, it shows that we have changed. And the movie is, you know, it's 25 years old. And it's a good thing that words like that are offensive these days. You know, they, they were they were harsh and offensive then, but people still used them. And it was it was brutal. And to hear, you know, it it actually sucked the joy out of this movie for you. Uh, that's that's a good thing. Um, I think for me, it's important to remember that just because I don't like a movie doesn't mean it isn't a good movie. Like Schindler's List is one of the hardest goddamn movies ever to watch. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I, I never want to watch it again. I saw it. I hated it. But I can acknowledge that it's a really good movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, not not that it's fair to compare Welcome to the Dollhouse to Schindler's List. <laughs> but my feelings, I think, are what merits the comparison. You know, like uh, something that that offends you or is hard for you, uh, like uh, Jojo Rabbit. That was a really mm-hmm. hard movie for me to watch and get through. I couldn't recognize the comedy. I, I couldn't find joy in this movie just because of the subject matter. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was just too hard of a movie to review because I it didn't sit well with me. I can acknowledge that it was a good movie, and I'm glad it was made. It was just not fun for me to watch. Right, and I absolutely agree. Kind of like Joker, too. Like, I absolutely think it's a fantastic film but it's it's such a hard movie to watch and i'm like i don't need to sit down and just put joker on as a background film you know <laughs> right. it's like such a, such a depressing and, and and grim movie that 
I like I don't want to revisit it for quite some time, honestly. But uh, but but I, I do think it's a very good film. So, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And, and and I get that. And if we were to make a, a Cavender Rancourt cut of Welcome to the Dollhouse, we would just change the F and the R word with like doofus and and dummy or something like that. Dweeb. Yeah, you, you, you big dweeb. And, and that would that would make it a whole different film. Um, and you could still see all the societal pressures and, and that which is, you know, middle school and stuff. So, yeah, I totally get it. But, yeah, I just wanted to to, to notate that at the start. All right. Stealer, a best friend. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> yeah. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so this week we are going to do Fargo, which is interesting because I think just two weeks ago we did the Big Lebowski and... It got me thinking, wow, I'm kind of offended that we haven't done Fargo because I actually love that movie quite a bit. Uh, this was your suggestion. I will not take credit for this, but uh, we are doing Fargo. came out in 1996. I believe that was March 10th, 1996. Uh, as directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, um, who you might know from Fargo and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, Inside Lewin Davis, No Country for Old Men, and True Grit. Uh, it was written by the Cohen brothers. It stars Francis McDormand, William H. Macy, Steve Buscemi, Peter Stormare, Kristen Rutrud, um, Harvey Presnell, Steve Revis, Larry Brandenburg, and the one and only John Carroll Lynch. As far as critical reception goes, excuse me, uh, Tim Brayton from Alternate Ending says, one of the richest American films of the 90s. Yeah, I'll buy that. Mm-hmm. Richard Propes from the independentcritic.com says Fargo as wonderful as it was is a film I will never again need to revisit and I couldn't be more opposite <laughs> exactly <laughs> this movie at least 30 goddamn times it's, it's pro- I dare say that I have seen this movie more than any other motion picture show ever made wow I think that that is possible it is just <laughs> one of those movies that I've always watch it's weird but. so did you even watch it for the, in preparation for this podcast dude i watched it today and yesterday and then <laughs> the week that we did big lebowski i watched yeah. it then too so <laughs> and it never gets old i it agree doesn't. with you in fact i yeah. fucking found i learned something new today that i'd never even noticed before perfect oh man when he's when they're the police are banging on the door at the hotel room they're like mm-hmm. mr anderson and he's like who? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm, like, I'm like, he doesn't even remember his fucking yeah. the name that he gave. And I've seen this movie so many times and I, that made me laugh. I'm like, what the fuck? Yep. Yeah. yeah. I, I learned something today also. So it's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I, I thought I was beside myself that I never caught that before. Of all the billion trillion times I've seen this movie. Yeah. That, now, uh, what the Christ. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what the crazy fine i'll do a lot count uh. <laughs> and then so there's one negative review out of this whole lot i should mention i suppose that on the old rotten tomato meter there this movie is a whopping 94 percent from the critics 93 percent from the audience and uh here's a fella that wasn't quite sold adam mars jones from the independent in the uk in effect the coens have written an action film that disregards the basic principle of the genre that character is expressed in action. I am not sure they saw the same movie. <laughs> I've never, ever in a million <laughs> years considered Fargo to be an action spectacular, but uh, to each their own, I suppose. And let's see here. The budget was $7 million. Had to import all that snow 
Yeah, actually. That is imported <laughs> California snow from the machines. It's the whites. The whites, yeah. dude. <laughs> uh, the film grossed, let's see, it did uh, $24.6 million in the United States and Canada, as well as uh, in the worldwide, you're looking at $60 million. It actually made uh, 730000 on opening weekend, which is crazy to me. Yeah, it's not a lot. No, a couple bucks. Although uh, it was not playing in a lot of theaters, uh, to be fair. I watched it in this little dumpy like art house theater that only shows art house movies. Ooh, those are my favorite. I like I those know. kind of places, but they are closed because of the vid, because of the COVID. So. Right. Anyway, that's that's all I got. Cool. Okay. Well, so here's some trivia. The actors used a book called How to Talk Minnesotan to help with their accents. And I think their accents are incredible in this film. William H. Macy begged the directors for the role of Jerry Lundegaard. He did two readings for the part and became convinced he was the best man for the role. When the Coens uh, didn't get back to him, he flew to New York where they were starting production and said, I'm very, very worried that you're going to screw up this movie by giving the role to somebody else. It's my role and I'll shoot your dogs if you don't give it to me. He was joking, of course. Whoa. (laughs) William H. Macy stated in an interview that despite evidence to the contrary, he did hardly any ad-libbing at all. Most of his characters' stuttering mannerisms were written in the script exactly the way he does them in the film. And that goes back to what I was talking about for The Big Lebowski, where pretty much everything that the dude did was was written on script. And I mean, that just speaks to the how meticulous the Coens are, which I think is incredible. Uh, Gare Grims- Grimsrud uh, has 18 lines of dialogue in the entire movie and never says more than a complete sentence at one time. You smooth smoothie. By comparison, Carl Showalter has over 150 lines of dialogue. <laughs> Pure fucking silence. See how you like it. <laughs> yeah, I thought he calls him a smooth smoother. I, no, I, I thought he says smooth smoothie because the um, what you McCollins. My subtitles, I think, said smooth smoothie oh, today. I always but, say he said you're a smooth smoothie. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I thought that's what he said. You're a smooth smoothie. <laughs> well, I learned two things today. Though. Yeah, and then uh, the other one I learned too was. Uh, the chicken that she eats, he's like, how's the fr- fricata or whatever? The chicken fricassee? Yeah, fricassee. Yeah. How's the chicken fricassee? <laughs> She's like, it's good. You want a bite? <laughs> Just like, oh, that looks gross. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Um, filming took place in the winter of 1995 when the region was experiencing its second warmest winter in 100 years. Talk about bad luck. Filming of outdoor scenes had to be moved all over Minnesota, North Dakota, and Canada. And much of the snow was artificial. Crazy. The movie is called Fargo because the Coens thought it was a better title than Brainerd, which <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Home of Babe the Blue Ox. But here we go. So, Babe the Blue Ox. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you haven't seen, if you haven't seen Fargo, here you go. In 1987, Jerry Lundegaard, the sales manager of an Oldsmobile dealership in Minneapolis, is desperate for money. On the advice of dealership mechanic and er, parolee, Shep Proudfoot, Jerry travels to Fargo, North Dakota, and hires Carl Showalter and Gare Grimsrud to kidnap his wife, Jean. Jerry promises them a new Cutlass Sierra and half of the $80,000 ransom he says he intends to extort from his father-in-law, Wade Gustafson, who owns the dealership. Jerry pitches Wade a lucrative real estate deal and believes Wade has agreed to lend him the $750,000 he needs to finance it, so he unsuccessfully attempts to call off the kidnapping. Wade and his accountant, Stan Grossman, inform Jerry that Wade intends to make the deal himself and pay Jerry only a modest finder's fee. Carl and Gare kidnap Jean and transport her to a remote cabin in Moose Lake. A state trooper stops them near Brainerd for driving without displaying temporary registration tags. 
When the trooper rejects Carl's clumsy bribe and hears Gene whispering in the back seat, Gare shoots him, then chases down and kills two passengers by who witness the scene. The following morning, Brainerd Police Chief Marge Gunderson, who is seven months pregnant, discovers the dead trooper was ticketing a car with dealer plates and that two men driving a dealership vehicle checked into the nearby Blue Ox Motel with two call girls and placed a call to Proudfoot. After questioning the prostitutes, Marge visits Wade's dealership, where Proudfoot feigns ignorance and Jerry insists no cars are missing. While in Minneapolis, Marge reconnects with Mike Yanagita, a high school classmate. Mike Yanagita? <laughs> you know, Mike Yanagita, remember me? Yeah, you could do worse as an engineer. <laughs> um, a high school classmate who awkwardly tries to romance Marge before breaking down, saying that his wife has died. Jerry tells, tells Wade the kidnappers have demanded $1 million and will deal only through him. In light of the three murders, Carl demands Jerry hand over all of the $80,000 he believes is the entire ransom. Carl is with another call, call girl in, mini, in a Minneapolis hotel room when Proudfoot enters and attacks Carl for bringing him under suspicion. Carl then orders Jerry to deliver the ransom immediately, but Wade insists on bringing it himself. Wade meets Carl at a parking garage and insists he will not hand over the money without seeing Gene. Enraged, Carl pulls a gun and shoots him. <laughs> no, Gene, <Wade>. no money. <laughs> Wade is carrying a pistol and fires back, wounding Carl in the jaw. Carl kills Wade, takes the briefcase containing the ransom, and drives away. On the way to Moose Lake, Carl discovers the briefcase contains $1 million. He removes 80000 to split with Gare, then buries the rest in the snow alongside the highway. At the cabin, Carl finds that Gare killed Jean because she would not be quiet. Carl says they should split up and leave immediately, and they argue over who will keep the car Jerry gave them. Carl uses his injury as justification, shouts insults at Gare, and attempts to take the vehicle. Gare kills Carl with an axe. Marge learns from a friend that Yanagita has no wife and is mentally ill. Reflecting on his lies, Marge returns to Wade's dealership. Jerry nervously insists no cars are missing and promises to double check his inventory, then hurriedly exits his office. He's fleeing the interview. He's fleeing the interview. <laughs> oh, for Pete's sake, he's fleeing the interview. <laughs> uh, as Marge waits, she sees Jerry driving off the lot and calls the state police. I guess you'd call that a defensive wound. Marge drives to Moose Lake after a local bartender reports having heard a funny looking guy brag about killing somebody. Uh, she drives by the cabin and sees Carl and Gare's car. As she investigates, she discovers Gare feeding Carl's dismembered body into the wood chipper. Gare attempts to flee. Marge shoots him in the leg, then arrests him. Shortly afterwards, North Dakota police arrest Jerry at a motel outside Bismarck. <laughs> Marge's husband, Norm, tells her his painting of a mallard duck has been selected for a three-cent postage stamp. He complains that his friend's painting won the competition for a 29-cent stamp. Marge reminds him that many people use smaller denomination stamps whenever prices increase and they need to make up the difference. Norm is reassured and the couple happily anticipate the birth of their child. Vargo. There you go. So, Justin, you have seen this movie a lot, but you said you saw it at an artisan theater. Uh, was that opening day, opening week? When did you first see it and what were your thoughts? Yeah, it was. Um, I, I feel like it was opening day. It could have been the next week, but I, I, I'm willing to bet it was opening day. I saw it with my sister and um, and our friend. And we just needed something to watch. We were we were already down in like the Palm Springs area and we wanted to go to a movie. And that was the only thing playing. And none of the three of us knew anything about it going into it. I, I had no idea who was in the movie. I had no idea what it was about. Um, and we just sat down and just laughed and loved every <laughs> second of it. 
How did you hear about the movie, though? Like, I mean, I saw it on the marquee outside the theater and it said Fargo. We just pulled up to a movie theater and just saw what was playing. Like we looked at the time, you know, like, hey, it's eight o'clock. This movie starts in five minutes. Let's go see this. Cool. And uh, literally, that was how it went down. I uh, been no idea. My sister's like, do you know what it's about? And I was like, yeah, it's kind of like this tie into Sesame Street. Like I kind of lied to her. <laughs> and like, I just, just came up with something. And she's like, all right, whatever you want to watch, dude. And so <laughs> and then we get there and then no joke. We sit down and then it opens up with that, that crazy, just scenic view of, of, of nothingness, you know, like what looks like the tundra. <laughs> it's just pretty nuts. <laughs> Well, did, you, did you know palm trees are native to California, Justin? Yes. <laughs> God, fucker. You're, you're, you're really good at lying and being convincing. So I the, am, the Sesame I know. Street one doesn't surprise me. I literally said, I'm pretty sure I said Sesame Street. I, I might have said Muppets or something, which I don't think I would have because everyone knows I can't stand Muppets. So um, why would I go see a movie? So uh, either way, we the three we three saw it and loved it. Yeah. Right on. I, I dig it. Would you would you wager to say that it's your favorite Coen Brothers film? Absolutely. Hands down, bar none. Good. The best one. Okay. I mean, I, and as, as coming from someone that adores the Big Lebowski, but it was it was the magic that that I saw with Fargo that sort of planted the, the Coen Brothers seed uh, in my brain forever to where uh, it is just what I, I come to expect. It is where the bar is at and it better be a pretty goddamn remarkable film to even come close to that bar. Fargo 2, Marge's Revenge. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Love Margie. <laughs> oh, my, oh God. my God. She's actually probably my favorite Coen Brothers character. I know that the dude is is quite up there, too, because he's just incredible. But God, Marge Gunderson is, is she's phenomenal. I mean, dude, and she yeah. doesn't come into the movie until 33 minutes. I know. It. It's crazy. It's only an hour and a half movie. So, I, I mean, it's, it's already almost over before she shows up. It's crazy. <laughs> Well, you got Arby's on me. <laughs> yeah, a third of the way into the movie, she shows up. Oh, my God. She's so great. I'm not sure I, I believe in your police work there, Lou. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I agree with you 100% on your, your poli- police work yeah. there. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, it's it's incredible. Yeah, I think I saw it from, I, I got, rented it from Netflix DVD, and I was very late to the party. I was about 10 years late to it. Uh, jumped into it and watched it, and I, I liked it. But uh, just like I've said before with other films, I needed to rewatch them multiple times. And this is one of those rare films that I will watch over and over again. And I, I learned something new and I just appreciate it more. And it's like it's power levels over 9000 now. I absolutely yeah. love this film. It's in my top 10 easily. Um, it's my favorite Coen Brothers film, but Big Lebowski is very close. Number two. So I absolutely adore this movie a lot and i've seen it more times than i can count i i, I agree with you so i've it on, on all the special editions but <laughs> um so this is a modern north noir film and it is characterized by a series of spiraling bad decisions throughout the film jerry digs himself deeper and deeper into a hole how did this enhance the film for you did you ever feel bad for jerry have you ever had a time where you dug yourself deeper and deeper into a hole um, so I'll answer, <laughs> I'll answer the third part last. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I was trying to think about any time where I ever just dug myself into a hole and I guess I'm pretty boring cause I can't think of anything. I've never tried to like have a plot to like kidnap my wife or do anything crazy or get caught up in this crazy. Life. <laughs> I mean, I say shit all the time just to say stuff. Um, but I usually come clean like immediately, like the whole palm tree thing. I'm like, yeah, I don't really know anything about <laughs> 
obvious. <laughs> uh, but I'll always say something and people are like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And then I'll let them know that it's not true. But I never really uh, fabricate a story to where I'm just constantly trying to to one up myself or, you know, come up with some solution and just keep classic sitcom uh, burying myself digger, uh, deeper and deeper. But um, I, I wish I had a fun story for you, but I don't. And um, I think for Jerry Lundegaard, he's really a, an interesting character because uh, I know I never felt sorry for him once. And that's only because it's in the opening scene that he is so casual about kidnapping his wife and how this is a perfectly sound plan and it's all set up and it's all perfect. And he's got money problems and, and <laughs> they don't know I need it. So there's that. <laughs> You know, they wouldn't yeah. give it to me if yeah. I asked. So there's that on top of that. So like, <laughs> even his family has a problem with him, you know. So uh, he's definitely a, an interesting sort. But I think because William H Macy is this is probably his best performance ever. Like, I, I think he is brilliant in this role, hmm. and and it it made me a fan of William H Macy for for life. Like I love everything that he does, but it's this movie and and his and his version of Jerry Lundegaard. That just blows me away. I, I never felt sad for him, but I mean, I I, I've, I guess pity would probably be a good word. Mm-hmm. But um, even when he's having like the worst of days, like when he's parked out in the middle of nowhere and he's got to get out to his car and he has like that meltdown, and he's scraping <laughs> the ice out. I'm laughing at that. I think that's so funny. Or when he picks up his his desk calendar and throws it on his desk and he's all upset. I laugh at that too. Everything that he does makes me laugh, and so. I, I don't know if it's an uneasiness or, or or being uncomfortable or what, but there's something about the way that the Jerry character is portrayed that the only emotion that I ever get from him is is laughter and and just pity. So it's kind of it's kind of strange. That is a it's it's pretty brilliant on behalf of the Coen Brothers to create this this horrible human being that I'm able to laugh along with. And and not necessarily care a whole lot about. I mean, I'm more concerned for his wife, his father-in-law, and his son. Mm-hmm. And his son just is like talking about classic sitcoms. This kid's just written out of the story. Like, <laughs> he's not even a factor at all. <laughs> it's, it's pretty nuts. Like yeah. even when he just le- drops everything and he's in Bismarck and he's getting arrested, it's like where, where's this kid? Who's where's Scotty? Kid? Yeah, <laughs> Scotty doesn't know, and it's uh, it's a shame. Yeah. So, yeah, it's crazy, man. I don't, I don't know about you, but uh, you know, were you ever sympathetic to to Jerry's plight, or were you just kind of along for the ride? Not at all. Not. I mean, even I remember seeing it. I was like, this guy's a fucker. Because uh, I think you know, even watching it today, what I think the scene that best exemplifies um, or personifies him basically or sums him up is when Wade gets killed. Uh, he, you know, he gets shot and Jerry drives up to the, the parking garage or parking place at the airport and the camera lingers behind his vehicle, shows you Wade's dead body on the right. And then all of a sudden the trunk just opens up without any dialogue. You already know that Jerry is sweeping the shit under the rug. Any, any reasonable person would be like, I am in too deep in this situation. I need to call the police. My wife might be dead, but no, this fucking guy is only looking out for himself. He doesn't care about his son. He doesn't care about his wife, if she's alive or not. And and clearly he doesn't care about his father-in-law. So it was, um, yeah, he, he's a bad dude, you know, and, uh, and all for what? All for a little money. It's, um, 
it's it, it's pretty crappy but uh but you're, you're absolutely right i think william h macy knocks it out of the park he's he's absolutely incredible and this movie like you were saying about his comedic uh, performance this movie's really funny like i don't think a lot of people realize that this movie is hilarious i i laughed so many times throughout this movie but um I, yeah i can't stop laughing like, i know <laughs> i think even at the beginning when they're sitting when the two goons are sitting at the the table yeah and they're sitting on the same side of each other like they're not even like you would think that they would sit across from each other waiting for jerry to arrive and then swap seats or something but they're both just sitting together in that booth and uh they're like like uh, you know we, we've been sitting here for an hour and he's like well shep told me 8 30 he's like <laughs> he's like shep, shep should have told you like shep didn't tell us that much except that you'd be here at 7 30 <laughs> That's the first time I laughed was that moment right there, except that you'd be here at 730. <laughs> Holy shit. That 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 is the one line that just just uh, opens the floodgates. Yeah. Laughter. I fucking love it so much. Well, and, and we'll discuss that a little later, too, in one of my questions. But uh, for the, the the comedic timing and everything. But yeah, I agree. And then in terms of like personal, if I've dug myself deeper, um, I definitely have. There were times when I was a kid that I lied about, like hiding porn and stuff or, uh, you know, breaking an item very Brady Bunch style, like breaking an item and trying to cover it up. And then it just becomes a whole issue. Like we had to go to the store to buy things and then that becomes an issue. And I'm like, what did I start? I, I lit a fire and, and it is now, it is now roaring. So dude, that's, that's literally the same as Jerry Lundegaard putting, putting the, the body in the trunk. Like just, I'm just going to sweep it under the rug. Exactly. That's so crazy. I never even like thought about that. I mean, even when he's like getting like, uh, taken down at the end and he's all like crying yeah <laughs> like, dude calm down <laughs> the worst is over man yeah. the hard part's done you know just fucking go with it yeah Take punishment exactly seriously man you got nothing else you have nothing else left like right you, you know you just turn your freaking self in so <laughs> such an asshole he is an One asshole sec. <laughs> oh, God. oh very good but i already I, I already sent those in so we i got the money it's it's, it's a done deal right <laughs> you know we should talk about that too because i was trying to add up all the different like schemes that he's involved in and you kind of lose count a little bit because it's like yeah. what what is this 40 grand gonna get him like what what because he's already done fraudulent um deals with gmac mm-hmm. right he's got a list of like 20 goddamn VIN numbers that mm-hmm. he's reporting these vehicles as like stolen. And uh, so he's planning on cashing out the money for that, I'd imagine. Plus he needs the the $750,000 for this investment deal. I don't, I don't understand where the $40,000, <laughs> where that comes in when you count up the money that involves the, the upwards of 20 vehicles and the $750,000 from, from Wade. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, it seems like a drop in the bucket. So I, I don't think I'm quite clear in all these years of how many scams he's got going on. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the beauty of it is, is because we can derive from that, that he's been a scumbag for quite some time and uh, he hides behind his politeness. And I mean, that's the theme I'll talk about through the rest of this podcast is he, he is this very, you know, like at the drop of a hat, like, Oh, what the Christ or I think a scene, the diner scene after Gene gets kidnapped and him, Stan Grossman and waiter at the diner, you know, and he's like, no cops, blah, blah, blah. And they're having this really tense conversation. The next scene we get is him being very polite to the, the girl who's like, how was everything? You know, the lady ringing him up. He's like, oh, real good now. Um, that kind of is, uh, 
that's kind of a microcosm for how Jerry acts. He just covers everything with his politeness. And so you're right. I have no idea how many schemes he's in. And this guy's probably been doing it for quite some time. He's a car salesman, man. Like, right. <laughs> you can't trust him. His wife owes money all over town. They feel my fucking rock. <laughs> I'm getting this car for 19.5. So. Yeah, he's just a shady dude, man. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm thinking that the 40 grand just might be like some sort of gambling debt or something. I don't know, but. I, I, I don't understand what $40,000 can do for him when he's buried so deep in all these other activities. Yeah, that's bad, man. That's why I think I think that's what's so so great about their character development is they're not going to give a whole bunch of exhibition like that because they could have had a line of dialogue saying his gambling problems or something, you know, but instead we can we can come to our own conclusions about it. And, and you just right. know he's a he's a bad dude. So right. <laughs> so funny it's at the beginning when he's like i need the money <laughs> yeah <laughs> well there's that and there's that these on top are, of that <laughs> these are personal matters that need not uh needn't uh <laughs> <laughs> so funny yeah oh my god jerry lendegaard all right well speaking of jerry and his plan it's uh it's incredibly idiotic and it ultimately ends extremely horrific and macabre uh it wouldn't surprise me if i heard this type of story on a podcast or the news do you think that something like this has been done before in real life? Can you think of any horrific plans like this that you remember seeing on the news? Uh, sort of. Uh, so when I was a kid, uh, I was like 13 years old, and um, there was this boy named Bobby Kent, and he was murdered by uh, a group of his friends. It was like six people and like this hitman guy, this makeshift hitman guy. And... Um, it was in like a little blurb in the paper. And then a couple years later, the, the court process happened. And then a book was written. And uh, eventually a movie came out. And the movie was called Bully. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's directed by Larry Clark. Um, and did you say you have seen it? No, I haven't. Sorry. Okay. It, it was streaming on Prime for the longest goddamn time. It might, it might even be so still. But Larry Clark's the guy that made that movie Kids. Have you ever heard of oh, that? Oh, yeah. That movie's effed up. Right. Okay. So he's the same guy that made that movie. And uh, in fact, the main kid in that, Telly, he plays the hitman in Bully. Uh, Mm -hmm. His name is Leo Fitzpatrick is the actor's name. Um, And then Brad Renfro is the the one that does the the kid that does the killing. And his friend is played by Nick Stahl. Uh, Mm. That's the that's the who's Bobby Kent. Mm -hmm. Uh, But anyway, the the whole thing is is these six kids that uh, want to kill. Uh, Nick Stahl's character, uh, Bobby Kent, and uh, he's he's a bully to them. He's mean to them. He he like rapes one of them. He's rude to. He beats up his best friend. Uh, his name is Marty, uh, who's played by Brad Renfro. Uh, but then they get this whole plot together to kill him, and and this is it takes place in Florida, and they just think the Gators are going to get him. But because they're all kids, um, you know, this is going to do some hardcore psychological damage to any normal human being, let alone a child. Uh, and so they all just kind of start sharing their story and then they eventually get caught. Um, but, you know, they had this plan, like how it was going to go down and it was completely botched. Uh, now, I don't know how accurate the movie Bully is to the events that happened in real life, but I do remember uh, the story hitting the news. Uh, you know, it was on all those sort of tabloidy uh, journalism shows. Um you know, any kind of crime shows that existed. I never read the book. Uh, We've talked about true crime before on this podcast countless times, and it's not a genre that we're particularly keen on uh, just because of it is real people being murdered. And it's just kind of 
too much for us to handle, but uh, I cannot tell you one way or another if the movie is is as close to the book, which is as close to uh, you know the actual events. Right. I do know that the guy that adapted the the book into a screenplay took his name off of the movie. So wow, um, there is that. And Larry Clark is the kind of filmmaker that he's like a shock factor kind of yeah, guy, you know. Yeah. So maybe it, it's hard for for folks to find entertainment when something is based off of a, of a true story. And I think that even maybe, I, I don't know what the real story is, but just on the surface, it would strike me as just being insensitive to, you know, the, the victim's family. Uh, I mean, this, this based uh, what we saw in the movie, uh, this, the bully that was murdered did a lot of horrible things. I mean, yeah, I don't want anybody to be killed or anything like that, but, uh, an argument could be made that, that, uh, these people were tired of being picked on. Sure. They should have went to the police. So they should have stopped hanging around this guy. But you know, when you're a victim, you know, you don't always think, uh, with a level head. So yeah, I absolutely. cannot speak to that, but when, it, as far as botched plans go, um, this movie, that movie bully ranks right up there with just how crazy the world of Jerry Lundegaard is. Um, and that was the first thing I thought of when you started asking me that question. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Have you seen alpha dog? Yes. Okay. So that's another one mm-hmm. where it all just goes to shit. Like right? they, they they plan to kidnap the kid just so that they can get their their money back, right? From mm-hmm. from the the drug dealer guy, and then it doesn't work out, and the poor Ugh. kid gets just murdered in the in the desert. He has to dig his own grave. It's so fucking sad. But yeah, and that's a you know based on a true story too. So right. yeah, I mean, there's a lot of evil in this world, and I think you know <clears throat> they. They definitely uh, took inspiration from from things like that, and uh, it's it's pretty gnarly. I can't think of anything from my hometown, but I know that there were some incidents uh, involving shootings and involving you know husband wife drama, like cheating on people. Like I, my sister had a friend who her ex husband's house, or no, how was it? Her new boyfriend showed up to her ex-husband's house and they got in an argument and the ex-husband shot the guy and killed his dad and like paralyzed him or something. It was, some, it was some crazy shit. And I just was like, Nope, hard pass. I would, <laughs> I would be like, yeah, I'm just going to move on. But anyways, um, yeah, man, that is dark. And I don't know if I'd ever want to watch bully because I know that kids is a pretty messed up movie and that will leave me with a bad taste in my mouth. Yeah. So I've seen bully twice. I, I don't know why I watched it twice. <laughs> <laughs> I have seen it twice. And Cause you're a masochist. It's, it's not, no, no, no. Um, it was the first time I watched it is because I, Larry Clark was someone that we had discussed in film class a hundred times. And so I was like, Oh yeah, fine. Whatever. I'll watch bully. But then the second time I watched it, it was just one of those nights where it was midnight and there wasn't a goddamn thing on TV. And this was, you know, the, the, if you had, Three megabyte download speeds. You had the hottest <laughs> internet in the world. So, I mean, it's not like I had a whole lot of options. And so uh, it was just like on HBO or Showtime or something. So, yeah. Okay. Right on. But I mean, it's again, I don't know how accurate it is when it comes to, you know, but yes, this is based on a true story. But if it's <laughs> based on a book that's a true crime novel that is based on the events of the actual victim, mm-hmm. I would imagine it would be. Uh, a little bit closer to the truth as opposed to um, something that's just, uh, you know, the names have been changed to protect the innocent kind of thing. And Larry Clark strikes me as a kind of filmmaker that would want to be as close to possible as possible uh, because he likes the ugliness of reality. Right. So, uh, but I don't know. I'm, I could just be whistling Dixie here. 
<laughs> I don't know, just whistling Dixon. <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> Not talking about your damn word, Justin. <laughs> Uh, the brilliance that is the Coen brothers shines through on nearly every scene, as, as we've discussed. One of their strongest points is their writing abilities. In my opinion, there is not a single wasted character in this entire film. What are your thoughts on this? Oh, yeah, I think that is 100% true. Even when like uh, they're at the diner and she's like, how was everything today? Yeah. You know, <laughs> real, real having like now. that chipper up her up feet, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Like how many times have you been to just some rando like truck stop or whatever and just the cashier was just on a whole nother plane of existence when it came to just like friendliness and he was like oh my god this character um or even like the toll booth guy you know like yeah he's in the movie for 30 seconds and it's <laughs> one of the funniest fucking things ever he, so, what do you mean yeah. you're not gonna park here <laughs> <laughs> you decided not to park here yeah it's so great so i mean i don't think that there was a single wasted character at all even the guy that's telling the story about uh oh my god uh, yes being alone up at the lake <laughs> yeah. it's so funny and then he's just like uh so you know, they told me to call the cops that, right so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. told me to call it in so, so i called, called it in, in. Oh my god, that's like that's like straight out of like cops, where you just see the guy without the shirt on that's talking to the camera, kind of thing. I I fucking love it. Like, like everything about this movie just screams like this is the Midwest. Like mm-hmm. if I were to go there today, I would encounter each and every one of those people. It, it might not be true, but that's their the perception that I'm given. Like this is that reality, mm-hmm. and I. I don't want to go anytime soon. I can enjoy <laughs> it on my TV. I saw you on, on the TV, but um, <laughs> I can't actually go. And he says, so where can a guy uh, go go to find some action? I'm going crazy out there at the lake. And I says, what kind of action? And he says, woman, woman action. action. <laughs> what do I look like? And I says, well, what do I look what like? Do I, look like? <laughs> I don't yeah. reach that kind of thing. That's oh, totally my dad, fuck. dude. Yeah. When my dad tells a story, he says, I says, they says, I says, he says, oh. it's so funny. <laughs> That's incredible. But yeah, I mean, it's those minor characters in this hour and 38 minute film that that really that's the glue that holds it together, in my opinion, because the, it, it all feeds into the the locations that they're at. I mean, the movie's named after a city. Now, granted, it doesn't take place in Fargo necessarily, but um, Brainerd is, is this area where people are nice they're polite and 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 that's the kind of person you would run into who would be shoveling their sidewalk if you just go and ask them a question where you know this guy probably doesn't have a, a negative bone in his body he just wanted to <laughs> he wanted to be on his way as he was tending bar so yeah exactly and and she even says when 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 margie sees the triple homicide she's she is convinced it is not someone from town yeah absolutely so it's 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 so important for for the entire makeup of this film. But uh, to follow up on that, though, so you and I obviously have quote the Coen Brothers films all the damn time and especially secondary quotes from minor side characters like I'm gonna, I'm still going to have to charge you the four dollars. But uh, even though those aren't the stars of the films, why are we so enamored with these ostensible throwaway quotes? Like, why are some of these quotes some of our favorites and not the main ones necessarily? So I think a lot of it has to do with just uh, the Coen brothers bringing out the best in their talent. Uh, a lot of these actors, you, you know, might be character actors. You might've seen them a thousand times, but you don't even know their name. Um, I think that they are just given this moment to shine Yeah, and, and it just works. I mean, John Carroll Lynch is one of 
you know, he is just a perfect example of you've seen him in a thousand movies, but you have no idea what his name is. Yeah. You just know um, him as Drew Carey's brother. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's so funny. Like, if you saw Volcano, he's the guy that, yeah. that, that jumps off and gets burned up. And if you've seen freaking uh, Shutter Bubble Island. Boy. Yeah, it's oh, another, he's, oh, yeah, he's in Bubble Boy? <laughs> yeah, shit. he's dead. Oh, shit. He's the dad in Bubble Boy. <laughs> and he's so fucking funny. <laughs> I didn't know that. Oh, my God. Um, Crazy funny. Stupid Love. He's in all kinds of movies, which we actually done on this podcast. Yeah. Um, but, I mean... He's he's great. Absolutely love him. Yeah. And um and it's just one of those things to where uh another thing uh, which I think you're going to get into later but uh anytime there's a character on screen in a Coen Brothers film, they are the star of the moment. Absolutely. It's, it's really crazy how that works, but it doesn't matter if it's the toll booth guy, if it is the cashier, the frame is just on that character. And that is who we are going to watch. We don't care about anything else that's going on on the screen, uh, which might even be why I never noticed all the crap in in um, Big Lebowski that you were talking about, like all just like the 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 ambiance of the rooms and and the different props. I never noticed because I'm fixed on whatever character is on screen. It's crazy how that works, right? Well, and I mean, you know, like like the hookers, right? We're focusing on them, and yeah, he's real funny looking. I mean, they just have such good lines, and same thing with Scotty, you know, like. Oh man, mom, what the hell and everything. And I'm going to go to yeah. McDonald's. Yeah. Uh, all these, there's no fucking yeah, way. There's no fucking way. <laughs> oh, it's got a language. Uh, oh Lou, God. I love Lou as the officer. He is so great. Yeah, Mike Yanagida. I think even in their other films, side characters like Brant, uh, Leonard Smalls from Raising Arizona. He was, you know, the guy that chases him on the bike and everything. Right. Uh, the gas station attendant in No Country for Old Men. All of them have such memorable moments. And I think that just goes into how brilliant they are as, as screenwriters. Um, just not wasted moments. It's a lot like Tarantino. Tarantino doesn't waste the small character moments. But um, I think uh, it's, it's, it's very, very important. And... I know we just we, we constantly quote these these little side character lines. I know <laughs> so it's, so it's really great. great. I know, right? Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Mike Yanagia. That's a fun one too because this movie taught me that Asian folks can live in the Midwest as well and yeah. still have accents like that. I mean, I was whatever sixteen years old, and to see him, to see Mike Yanagia speaking like he's from Minnesota, you know, <laughs> it was just so funny to me. I was just like, how is this even possible? Um, and it just kind of opened up my eyes a little bit that, you know, accents are 100 uh, percent, you know, territorial kind of thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, like my sister moved to Tennessee uh, 11 years ago and her kids grew up there and they talk like they are from Tennessee because they are, you know, they were, they weren't born there. They were born in California, but they are Tennesseans through yeah. and through. <laughs> and it is crazy to hear them talk. Yeah, I'm like. Put your mother back on. <laughs> I, <need to> t- <laughs> I don't know what you're saying right now. I don't have a translator going here. Yeah, it's so <laughs> funny. So you went ahead and married Norm, son of a Gunderson. <laughs> oh, I love that line. That's one of my favorites. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, yeah, I agree, man. It's 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 pretty crazy. And when you go to the Midwest too, I mean, my roommate she was from Chicago, and so she'd be like, "Oh yeah," she, you know, it wasn't it wasn't as hardcore as Minnesota, but she'd still say things like that, and she called me Zach, Zach, and uh, it was it was just funny, but. It is, it is quite the thing for sure. My uh, my next door neighbors are from New Jersey and I you wouldn't know it talking to them. But uh, I asked them, like, you know, when they go back home, does the New, does the New Jersey accent kind of slip out? And she's like, oh, yeah, but like, give me my coffee. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just, I'm like, oh, OK, great. I was like, because right now I'm a little disappointed. You know, I've lived next to you for two years and I had no idea you're from New Jersey. Yeah. You know, you're not calling anybody a 
fucking scumbag or anything like that. <laughs> um, just like uh, Carly, our friend Carly, she gets she's she's such a sweetheart, and then when she gets drunk, you ha- she her hardcore New York accent comes out, and she's like, "What are you talking about?" And yeah. it's, just, it's very. I'm like, "Whoa, don't whack me!" So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not for nothing, but uh, you yeah. suck. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty. It's pretty awesome. So transitioning, we we already discussed him quite a bit, but I want to discuss John Carroll Lynch, who's Norm Gunderson. The name is not universally known as an A-lister by by a lot, but uh, he may arguably be one of the most recognizable that guy character actors around. His credits include films like Zodiac, Shutter Island, Gothica, American Horror Story, Crazy Stupid Love, and Volcano. Um, I mean, you kind of answered this, but how did you like his yeah, performance? I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't no. even know. Oh, that no, 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 that's fine. Uh, you know, how, how overall do you think his, his performance was in Fargo? And do you think he was cast appropriately? Or could you maybe have seen him as one of the uh, of the bad guys or just a different character in general? So I love his performance. Uh, he their marriage is like the most wholesome part of this movie. And it kind of reminds you that there are some good people in this world. Yeah, because uh, we're surrounded by just. <laughs> cynicism everywhere yeah and like uh like steve is like a bunch of fucking imbeciles like that's that's <laughs> like everyone is terrible at their job in this movie minus margie and i love their relationship i love how he wants to get up even though it's still like oh dark 30 kind of thing and he's, she's gotta have a breakfast gotta have a breakfast margie you know i thought they were so sweet together yeah. <laughs> uh they're always laying in bed together uh, when she comes back in like prowler needs a jump you know, I think that's so cute. Uh, she gets some worm crawlers. He got her uh, lunch. Um, everything about their their it's like they're newlyweds. You know, they're 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 happy. They love each other, um, and they su- they support each other. And so I think he did an awesome job in this movie. You know, he's very he's very humble, um, maybe too humble. You know, he's he's got to do this this uh, this contest for the for his mallard with the with the to be a stamp. And I love how much she supports him and how he he knows that, you know, like the Hoffmans or whatever are entering their painting in this year. And she's like, they're good, but you're better than them. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, I like how she's, you know, taking charge like, hey, you know, you're you're fantastic. You are who you are. And I love you for it. And, um, you know, even when he like hawks that loogie in the, in the, the bedroom. <laughs> yeah. She's just like, oh, Norm, like this yeah. is the man that I love and marry. And, and she's so I, genuine about everything. Yeah, absolutely. The two of them together are so perfect. I love his performance. He's in the movie for maybe five minutes at screen time, uh, but he's he's fantastic. I agree. We, could you see him maybe if because I mean he's he's such a diverse actor and we've seen him as a villain, we've seen him as a comedic sidekick, we've seen him as you know a hero, just a normal guy, all that kind of stuff. But what about if he was one of the uh, like if he was if he was Peter Stormare or if he was Steve Buscemi or if he was even Wade? Could you see him in any, any of those roles? Absolutely. He can do anything. Yeah. He he could be fucking He-Man. He could be the Little Mermaid. He can. <laughs> the guy's amazing. The guy could do whatever he wants. He's so good. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I really loved him on the Drew Carey show, like we were saying. And yeah, Volcano, when he sacrifices himself, you're like, holy shit. Uh, but uh, Shutter Island, even that small role he had too. And Zodiac, he terrified the crap out of me at the end. I'm just like, oh, I don't like this guy. But yeah, uh, yeah. he's nuts. John Car- he, he was Carol in... Um, he was in uh, Walking Dead as well. He was one or two episodes. Yeah, I don't remember like who he played. Episode. He's the one that has like the the stick and he teaches. Oh, yes. Um, yes. He's like Eastman or something like yes. that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he teaches. Yeah. Uh, I forgot his name. 
the dude who uses the stick. I know who you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's been a while since I watched Walking Dead. The guy Dead. that lost his son in like the mm-hmm. first couple episodes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah if you listen to. Exactly. I, I quit watching the show. It got on my goddamn nerves. <laughs> I know, me too. So like, fuck this show. <laughs> well, well, except for like season six or something, I quit watching it. I was like, I can't Morgan. His name is Morgan. Yes, Morgan. Yeah. yeah Lenny James. Yep. Yeah. So obviously, Jerry Lundegaard is a fat fucking bitch. He ultimately killed his wife and all for a little money. Did the true coat scene show you everything you needed to know about Jerry that early on? Can you think of a better scene that maybe exemplifies how bad of a dude Jerry is? And I know we touched on this earlier, but uh, do you think the true coat might be the best example of it? Or is there a better one? So the true coat is a pretty good indicator of how he just is a liar. I think that I think the true coat is good to show like who he really is. But I think it's the meltdown in the parking lot for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that really seals the deal. Like, I mean, that's when he's really starting to understand that he is in way over his head. But he, he just goes along with it. Um, and we were talking about flawed characters with Big Lebowski. Fucking Jerry Lundegaard is a flawed character. I mean, he is just a bad, bad mm-hmm. man. Um, he might be polite. You know, and he would never do anything to hurt his son physically or anything like that. But I mean, the lengths that he's going to to just, you know, cover up his own skin is is pretty nuts, man. Right, right. Um, he's just so just disconnected from reality. <laughs> it's crazy when he's on the phone uh, talking to the the mechanics mm-hmm. and the guys just waiting for Jerry to say something. He's like, ah, you know, I need to talk to Shep. And he's like, I don't need my car fixed. Yeah, I just need, uh, you know, uh, and just like rambling. And the guy's like, what? <laughs> you hear a guy yell. And Jerry still doesn't come up with it. The, the camera leaves him. It's like he's just so lost in his thoughts and his ways that he can't even articulate a sentence. And that's when you know that you are just uh, so far gone. He is so knee deep in the weeds that uh, there's no coming out from that. Mm hmm. Yeah, he doesn't answer Margie's questions necessarily. He's just like, hey, oh, the blue ox. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm real busy now. And she's, he's just like doodling on his, his golf pad. So, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah man. And I, it's, it's really hard. Like, uh, even when he's on the phone with the GMAC guy and he's talking about the VIN numbers and then he's like, you know, I'll fax it over to you. And, and the guy just has to keep repeating, no, fax is no good. Uh, just because Jerry doesn't listen, you know, he's right. just a, he's just such a, a scatterbrain. Well, and he ha- he's he's fake polite. I mean, so the juxtaposition of of this big city Minneapolis versus, you know, Brainerd is everyone in Brainerd is so goddamn polite and they seem so genuine, which isn't that far far fetched for how a small community can be. I've been at places where everyone has just been so polite. Like the whole country of Ireland, everyone was so polite there and it was beautiful and incredible. But uh in a big city like Minneapolis, you know, you're going to run into some pretty negative Nancys and they may act polite and, and Jerry's always smiling and he's always, you know, you're going to want that true code, that kind of stuff. And yeah, yeah you don't need that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But he's, he's like, you know, I'll go ask my boss. Okay. You know, he, and all he does is say, Hey, you go to the Gophers game like, full time. You know, he's a bold faced liar, but he's hiding behind this fake politeness. And, uh, and he's just, I think that says a lot for him and, and a lot for, for, for the characters around like that. But uh, yeah. I, I don't want to talk too much more about Jerry, but yeah, he's a, he's a bad dude, man. The true cut scene is good, but um, I agree with you. I think that that ice scene where he's scraping because he that's when he starts to become unraveled and he's like, holy shit, I'm in way too deep. 
Yeah. And it hasn't even really started yet. No. So he comes home mm-hmm. and that's when he finds out his wife was kidnapped. Yeah. And he, you know what's interesting too about that is uh, I, I, I thought about this today because this is not a thing I don't think I've ever noticed before. But he actually carries the bags of groceries upstairs and into the bathroom. He didn't put them down on the counter or anything like that. He's He sees that she was kidnapped. And so I was thinking that maybe this was just this cold, harsh reality sinking in like, oh, my God, this mm-hmm. actually happened. And I, he might have even been scared. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He practices his speech and everything like that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to do with Gene. I don't know what to do with my wife. <laughs> I don't know what to do with Gene. He's like, yeah, I'm going to go with that. <laughs> God, he's such a prick. So, oh, geez. Yeah. So like I stated earlier, the Coen brothers are incredibly meticulous with their scripts, and Fargo is no exception. A typical noir may not necessarily have a hidden meaning, but I think Fargo has several. What do you think the meaning of Fargo is? Oh, man. Uh, I don't really know, to be honest with you, because I feel like, for me, my big takeaway was always just uh, the relationship between Marge and uh, Norm versus the relationship between Jerry and his family. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is very supportive of one another and they love each other and they would do anything for each other. Whereas with Jerry, he is just, you know, I, I gotta save my own skin and he is just a bad man. And I think when, even when she's like, you know, it's a beautiful day, you know, at the end of the movie, yeah. it's like, wow, we're in this horrible fucked up place with all this <laughs> snow and nothing going on. And she's like, yeah, it's a beautiful day. Yeah. I think it's just one of those things where, yeah, it's almost like a life is what you make of it kind of thing. And uh, <laughs> I, I've i never really thought too much about the meaning of Fargo other than there's some horrible people out there and there's some really good people. And if you're lucky, you'll be able to surround yourself with with the good ones. Live it while you make it. <laughs> he likes exactly. to see homos naked. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you're absolutely right. Because um, I thought about it more and more and then I kind of read into it. But I basically think that when Margie sums it up the best, she says, you know, all this trouble for for a little bit of money. And basically money isn't everything. Um, you have to enjoy the little happy things in life because the juxtaposition of Brainerd and Minneapolis, like I alluded to earlier, is, is, is just that. So everyone there, the people of Brainerd, they enjoy these ordinary lives without greed or without drama that we really see. You know, I'm sure there's drama, but it's probably, oh, whose worms are better? Like, you know, this this drugstore yeah. or that drugstore. Nightcrawler war. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Race wars. <laughs> um, and, and everyone seems so genuine. So yeah, uh, Norm and Marge, I mean, you didn't, with, with, with Norm being in the movie for maybe five minutes of screen time, you didn't need to portray that, but it, it's very important to show that Marge is this ordinary pregnant police chief who on paper, you'd probably be like, she's not very smart, but she figures out a triple homicide in in the easiest way possible in the most casual, like nonchalant way possible. Um, and ends up cracking this huge murder case. Like it's, it's, it's so lovely and she's absolutely right. I mean, think about everybody who, it's greeting this film. Jerry is up to his, his neck in, in debt. And, and all he does is care about money. I mean, even to the point where he cares about money more so than his family. And so, um, you know, the killers, Steve Buscemi, think about this. If, if, if Showalter would have given him, given, uh, Gare the $80,000 and said, fine, you can just have this. I'm going to have the car. He, he could have lived and gone on and got the rest of his millions of dollars or a million dollars that he buried. Like, why was he making a big deal out of $40,000 when he could have just given him that and lived and then got the rest of the money? So I think that it just shows that, you know, 
greed and money are pretty bad things and you, you really need to enjoy this, the small things in, in, in life and uh, ordinary is, is okay. I think, it's, yeah. I think it's really great. But yeah. No, 100% on the greed. I mean, that's so true. I mean, literally, he's got a briefcase of a million dollars and he's arguing over his cut of 20,000 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, come on, dude. Yeah. It's, uh, it's pretty crazy. I mean, it, it's stupid and it's, it, I get, I get his frustration getting shot, but even at the end of the day, you're like, fine, man, I'm going to take the truck and I'm going to go get all this money and peace out, dude. It's uh pretty, pretty insane. But yeah, I think that's the general meaning of the film and it's hard to derive something from this per se in, in the sense of what the ultimate meaning is. But I, I think that's what the Coens were going for with it. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. And I do think, um, you know, like when she's, when Margie's in the car after she's arrested, uh, Grims, what is his name? Grimsford? Uh, uh, Grimsford? Gr- Grer, uh, I always forget it. It's like Grer. Yeah. Gare Grims. Actually, hang Something. on. Let me look. Yeah. I always thought it was Grimsford for the longest time, but I guess uh, it's Grimsred. Rudd. Yeah. Grimsred. Grimsred. Yeah. Grimsred. Yeah. Um, the, uh, when she's in the car with him, you know, she's, she has just seen a lot of horrible things. Like, uh, she saw the triple homicide. She saw the wood chipper and she had to shoot a man. And she's going to give birth soon. You know, she's bringing her kid into this world. And that's got to be kind of an eye opener for her, especially coming from just like a small community like Brainerd. Uh, I haven't really thought about that either. You know, like she's she's a this amazing police officer, police woman officer. And um, <laughs> <laughs> fans out there. And uh, that's kind of a weird take after after experiencing these last couple of days and seeing the horrible and what people will do for just a little bit of money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's like a like a rub your belly kind of moment. Like, oh, my God, I'm gonna bring my child into this this wicked world. And uh, it's ugly. I got to prepare them for that. Yeah. But I mean, I think that that helps reinforce some parents. Like, I mean, I was raised pretty, pretty well. And um, I know some parents who they raise their kids very well amidst all the, the awfulness that, that goes on in this society. But I think uh, it can strengthen too. So I think that they can be positive that can come from that negative as well, for sure. So the title Fargo can be very confusing. Seen as the majority of this movie takes place in Minneapolis and Brainerd. Why do you think the Coens made this the title? Uh, apart from it sounding better than Brainerd, <laughs> yeah, um, I would say that uh, that's where it all starts. I mean, that's where the meeting happens with Jerry Lundegaard and the kidnappers. Um, so it's a good point of reference. Makes yeah. sense to me. I agree. I think that's probably pretty spot on to why they did it. it you're right. It does sound way better than Brainerd. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it just stands out a little more. I'm sure that the city of Fargo is probably OK with it. Like you said, you have a friend from Fargo, so I'm probably sure they're OK with it. But I don't yeah. know. Um, and I, I know that you, we kind of talked about this in previous podcasts, I think like Napoleon Dynamite, but, uh, did you grow up in a small town? Uh, how did the incorporation of a, of small town Brainerd versus giant city Minneapolis affect the overall story for you? Um, yeah, so I grew up in 29 Palms and, uh, that's out in the middle of the, the high desert. It's a lot of fun. I mean, much like, uh, John Mellencamp with, uh, I was born in a small town, I live in a small <laughs> town, probably going to die in a small town. <laughs> All the small communities, you know, the whole thing. Um, except that Jesus isn't really a thing in my <laughs> I guess he's there, but it's not as prominent as, like, let's say the Bible Belt. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Absolutely. You know, there's a, there's a pretty strong Mormon community in, in 29 Palms. Um, but I think I only noticed that because a lot of the families have so many kids. Like a kid I went to school, Thomas Douglas, who was one of 14. And that is just, that's like frontier days. 
That's a lot. <laughs> a lot of brothers and sisters. Yeah. A pretty big scope. And so um, definitely a, a pretty big Mormon community. At least it used to be when I was there. Um, but yeah, it's a small town. It's grown a lot. I still go back every now and again. Uh, like every other month or so, I go back to my Palm. My sister still lives there. So um, it's fun to see it grow over the years. Uh, after living in Washington for a decade and then coming back to it, that was an eye-opener, make no mistake. I was like, whoa, look at all these traffic lights. This place is a thriving metropolis. <laughs> look at all them buttons. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty good. And uh, so, yeah, I definitely grew up in a small town to where news traveled so fucking fast, man. And if you were, if you had like a couple of buddies, like in the standby me sort of um, state of mind where you had four buddies and you're just running around causing up trouble, uh, <laughs> whoever you were causing trouble with, they knew your father. Like, yeah. uh that was just the, the if you were going to mix it up and get into trouble, just be prepared that your dad was going to know before you made it home. <laughs> That's just the way the world works. Yeah. Uh, so I'm very grateful for that. You know, there wasn't like a gang problem or anything like that. Uh, it was a very good place for for me to grow up. Uh, we got into trouble, but nothing, nothing crazy. You know, just kids being kids, like jumping off roofs and and camping out in the wilderness without telling anybody, you know, stuff like that, like normal kid <laughs> shit, but not like hurting another human or anything. So um, I will forever be grateful for, for growing up in a small town, but um, yeah, it's crazy. It's, it's just one of those things where I'm, I'm, if there's ever a movie that takes place in 20 Palms, I will always watch it. <laughs> and there's yeah. been a couple. And really? They're never, yeah. They're never any good. Oh, um, fascinating so, yeah. yeah i agree and i think the would would you say that maybe if a some big city folk came to 29 palms and um they had a plot like this do you think that uh something could unfold like the plot of fargo in 29 palms yeah i think so um i mean it's a perfect town for it it's out in the middle of nowhere and so you know one it's interesting because there's a moment in the at nighttime. Uh, if, if you've ever been out into the desert, just out in the middle of nowhere, uh, lights really stand out, right? And so uh, there's this gas station that's right on the edge of town. And when you look one way, you see the bright lights of Toyan Palms. And it looks amazing. But when you look the other way, you just see a total blanket of darkness. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> and it's kind of weird. It's like the edge of the earth kind of thing. <laughs> and especially if there's no moon. Then you're just like, fuck, that looks pretty dark out there. And so, you know, whatever happens out on that side is, is who knows? You know, only wow. God knows. But it's pretty weird when you think about it. And it's just empty road all the way to like that gas station just before Vegas kind of thing. And so it's really crazy. <laughs> and there's even a sign like, like, yes, but the next guest stop is in like 120 miles or something like that. So Jesus. you're like, okay, I better, might as well get gas now just in case. <laughs> I don't want to run out in the middle of nowhere, but. Uh, it's so funny how that works. Yeah, absolutely. So I could see, I could see easily see like, um, you know, that gas station getting robbed and then the person driving out into the darkness and getting attacked by the demons that are in the darkness, (laughs) whatever the hell's in the darkness. (laughs) Um, the Demi comes at night. Oh, fuck that movie. (laughs) I hate that movie so much. Well, so Minnesota, um, wait, 
Minnesota. Yeah, I guess Minnesota. Minnesota as a whole, I'll just say Brainerd, uh, looks incredibly bleak, cold, and morose. Where the winners. <laughs> Sorry for all you people that live in Minnesota. I know. I have some friends over there. Um, where the winters are harsh and they create all sorts of additional problems. The summers are really great. Don't get me wrong. Minneapolis is a fantastic city. So is St. Paul. Fantastic, fantastic. We talk about cities like NYC or LA being characters in films, but what about weather? How do you think the snow acted as its own additional character in this film? Have you ever been in a heavy snowstorm or snowfall like this? Uh, yeah, I have actually. And it was terrifying. Uh, in central Washington, it gets pretty dicey in the wintertime. And uh, I hate it. I hate the winter. I hate everything about the winter. I hate snow. I'll eat snow cones, but uh, that's about it. <laughs> and snowballs. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, not a fan of the snow. It's uh I got into a horrible accident. I was ran off the road by a big rig and it hit my car and I went spinning and it was awful. And I have like, I was, I was traumatized. Um, but I knew the weird thing is, is I feel like I kind of created this problem myself because I knew that I was going on this trip for work and I had a bad feeling about it. Like a total Han Solo. I got a bad feeling about this kind of thing. And I feel like I willed it into existence. I don't know if you've ever had something like that happen, but I think I was so concerned about my safety for this trip that I, I somehow spun the universe in a way to where I was going to get in a car accident. And that I couldn't see the road at all. I couldn't see anything. Couldn't see cars. And this truck must have been the same way because he hit me like he was going full speed. And, uh, and it was bad. And, uh, it was just, I never want to drive in the snow ever again. I, I won't drive in the snow again. And and we had, so that was in uh, January of 19, or I'm sorry, uh, January of 2019. And that same year, Washington just got annihilated with snow all the mm -hmm. way through like April. Mm -hmm. And um, I had to keep driving to work in the snow. And as I'm driving, these cars are wrecking all around me. They're spinning out of control. So many people just abandon their cars on the on the highway when this <laughs> shit happens. Yeah. It's like, what are you doing, man? Someone what, this is dangerous. But I just remember so much snow was coming down that it looked like I was going warp speed in Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. You know, when all this the stuff when like the stars just sort of do like that weird zoom effect. Mm -hmm. That's what it looks like when it's snowing so bad on your windshield and you can't even see. And I just remember just white knuckling it the whole way to work. And, and I, I couldn't call out, you know, I was the person that had to open up the store. So it was me or, or no one kind of thing. And I just remember hating it so fucking much. And it, it traumatized me, Zach. Like I'm literally, I will not drive in the snow ever again. Yeah. I, I think I remember you telling me about that. And that was uh, pretty crazy. So I, uh, I don't blame you. I, I wouldn't want to either. It is, I, I, I am okay driving in the snow, but I still am very, very cautious and I want to, I don't want to spend the holidays dead. So that's what I, I, I take my time in that. But yes, I agree with you, man. It can get really dicey out there for sure. And like, you know how you just can't stop and uh, your brakes don't do anything and you, heal, no, you feel yeah. like the gunk happening because yep. your car's just sliding. Like, I know what I'm doing, but that doesn't mean that the kid behind me does exactly. or the car next to me does. And so that's where the real like terror comes. You know, we talk about control a couple times and like, you know, we don't have any control over this or that. And that's a perfect example where the road is already dangerous when you're just driving on the fucking freeway. <laughs> and now all of a sudden you're, you add snow to the mix and someone that doesn't know how to drive yeah. um, or is just inexperienced. 
or they're not paying attention. They're on their fucking phone. They're, they're tweeting about some twat. And it's like, oh, my God, <laughs> just fucking drive. And it's that's the real scary thing. When I was a kid, my dad would say, don't mess with the radio while you're driving. It's distracting. Now I got to worry about people not only messing with the radio, but also Snapchatting their buddies or doing a, getting out of their car and doing a fucking TikTok dance or some bullshit. <laughs> and it's just too much. Yeah. It's driving me nuts. Yeah. Well, I agree. And I think I think that that plays into that, that question I asked, too, about it being a character, because it's you you spoke of the desert being this vast, you know, darkness and stuff. And when Carl is burying the, the, the briefcase <laughs> in and he just looks he's like, where the fuck am I? How am I going to remember this snowy field that just seems to never end? So he uses the snow to bury it and sticks a, a ice scraper on there like that's going to work. I mean, it's it's just so interesting because. If this film couldn't be filmed in a city because it just wouldn't have the same effect. You have to have the car spinning out. The prowler needs a jump. Um, you know, uh, God, what else? The the true coat. You're going to need it for all the, the rocks. Yeah, that'll and the keep snow. the salt off. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's so important why that's there. And and it does act as a very important thing. You know, it's it's so cold outside. Everyone wears whatever. And so um, I think uh, much akin to like Los Angeles or New York, like we said, the weather does come into effect because obviously it makes people drive a lot differently. So that high speed chase that that uh, Gare was getting into with the two onlookers. I mean, that was a lot more captivating because it was in snow. So. <laughs> Yeah, 100%. What was that movie you had me watch? Uh, Wind River? Oh, yeah. I love that That's one. another one where it's just out in the middle of fucking nowhere. Oh, yeah. And it's it's a big part of the story. Mm-hmm. And uh, I like that. Yeah. Makes makes him walk like, you know, miles naked in the snow. I was like, oh, pass. Yeah. <laughs> Can you just shoot me now? Like two seconds. <laughs> yeah. yeah the, the girl went like the whole oh, movie or whatever. That's yeah. crazy. Made me so sad. But yeah. Cool. Well, I want to talk about Roger Deakins. He is uh, one of the greatest cinematographers of all time. So there's no surprise that the Coens use him for most of their films. Amongst many of his beautifully choreographed tactics he uh, used throughout filmmaking, I want to discuss the shot-reverse shot usage in Fargo. So many shot-reverse shots are done over the shoulder and with a long lens so as to give the audience a sense of voyeurism. In Fargo, though, Deakins performs his shot-reverse shot as a single shot, utilizing a wide-angle um, facing the actor directly with the camera placed in between the two characters. Did you notice this? And how do you think it enhanced your viewing experience if you did? And why is it better than the typical shot reverse shot choice? Yeah, I, I think this kind of goes back to where I was saying that no matter which character, uh, the the star of the movie or, or just some weird quirky person that shows up, um, whenever they are on screen, they are the star of the movie. And I think that this film technique has a lot to do with that. Uh, they are literally the center of attention anytime they're on screen uh, because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, g- it gives a presence there. It really does. Like we are looking up at the phone booth guy from inside the car mm-hmm. and and he is he's in charge. He wants his $4. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what you, like, you're probably like some sort of authority, authority figure. figure. <laughs> Goddamn right I am. Give me my four fucking dollars. Like, I love that. Like that. There's just something about that and how. Uh, even Jerry, when he goes up to the counter to pay for the meal and there's the, the nice hostess that he has to pay uh, for, for a, a two seconds, she is the star of the movie. And I think a lot of it just has to do with how it's shot. And I think that that's incredible. 
And they and do. I don't, I don't yeah. think you would get that with any other movie. No, and they do this in so many films. I mean, it, it, you feel this connection, like you're saying that you're one of the characters because you're sitting in between. Instead of a uh, over-the-shoulder shot where you're just kind of watching what's going on. And there are a couple over-the-shoulder shots in this, but it was more because they'd be sitting at a table or something. But yeah, you get way more depth between any conversation. And we we spoke on how this this movie is hilarious, right? But a lot of that is not because of the script. The script is is perfectly writ, or, or written, in my opinion. But the camera really helps with that dialogue. And so the, the shot reverse shots that they use, they create this rhythm to the dialogue where you focus on somebody, say something, then you cut to their reaction. And so like the ticket booth guy where he says, I don't want to park here. And you see the guy's face kind of like in a disappointment, slump, <laughs> slump down a little. He's like, what do you mean you don't want to park? And just his expression is incredible. Or like when when Carl gets shot in the face and he's like, hey, sir, I'll take, I'll take your ticket now. And he's like, open the fucking gate or whatever. <laughs> Just it's it's funny how they how they portray it and how they're presented or anytime Stan Grossman is on there and there's a close up of him just chewing. And, you know, I think it's towards towards the, the second third of the movie when they're they're trying to decide and they're about to do the drop off for the money and Stan Grossman's kind of just chewing and looking it's it's so funny and everything is just is well done and I think that's my biggest takeaway from Fargo is it is a master class in how you can shoot a film and how you can uh use the camera to to enhance the the comedy like Edgar Wright we talk about his physical comedy and and his camera usage is exactly why we laugh so hard at the movies because it'll right. jump immediately to something. And I think it is, it's brilliant. Right. And I, and I think this is something that um, like film students today would be able to get. I don't think you would have got that 20 years ago. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, you watch a, a, a student film and it's just sort of like this boring everyone's on the screen at the same time kind of thing. There's a conversation that's happening. Both actors are in the shot at the same time. And, and it gets a little talking head syndrome when it's, when it's done this way, it's not something that you're used to. So it's a little <laughs> bit more fun. And uh, I think, especially in a movie like this, where not a whole lot is happening. Uh, Coen brothers are very much uh, character driven stories. Um, anything that you can do to just add some sort of, uh, dynamic to it uh definitely helps and and in this case it's literally a matter of just placing the camera front and center in front of these people and it's fucking awesome and i love it so much yeah i mean even in the big lebowski they do it to you know the sheriff of malibu and and him where he's like i'm sorry i stopped paying attention or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> throws a coffee mug i mean so so many <laughs> of those fascists? yeah you're you're obviously not a, a golfer <laughs> I mean, just every every angle and, and how they use the camera to do um, high and low shots is is just so purposeful. And it's it's just a master class in filmmaking. And I know. it's it's absolutely remarkable how well Wes it's done. Anderson's like that, too. He um, is fantastic. A lot, a at lot that. of his shots are, are sort of uh, centered uh, talent. You yeah. know, um, he loves symmetry. Yeah, he's very much a, a symmetry person, whereas any normal movie that you watch, uh, something's someone's usually left to center or right to center or whatever. Mm-hmm. It just kind of works. Um, you know, video games are even taking that approach now, like a first, uh, like an over the shoulder game. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the 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 character that you're playing is is right of center or left of center, um, it, and that that's neat for video games because that's kind of a relative new concept. Like when it happened with uh, Resident Evil Four, I think it was one of the first times that we ever really got that experience. Yeah, I mean that's going back to whatever two thousand four or five or whatever now. So I mean it's been a while. But I mean it's not something you see all the time. But the first time you saw it, you were like, holy shit, this is this is new. I've never played a game like this before. <laughs> yeah. Um so 
you don't need to reinvent the wheel when it comes to filmmaking or anything like that, but just something as simple as, as camera placement uh, is it's crazy how much that that helps tell the story. And I think it's really important to to recognize good filmmakers from bad filmmakers because honestly, Justin, I thought about Army of the Dead more and more and I fucking hate that movie. I was really upset with Zack Snyder because I couldn't stand his stupid blurring of the background and <laughs> his shots were, were so purposeful and Netflix hyped up this movie like a, a ton and I get it. I understand why, but it was such a poorly done film and they did a... Um, they did a pitch meeting for it, which you should check out because I, I watched it. Oh, yeah, my God. It. it was so funny because it was everything that we were saying. We're like, wait, what? He doesn't use the saw <laughs> like they, <laughs> yeah. they they built up all this this anticipation for the saw. And all they do is cut through a door. I'm like, OK, cool. Or cut through a wall. <laughs> yeah. So but I mean, things like that, you have to be really careful where, where people are like, oh, is that, he, he's such a visionary, Zack Snyder. And I, I mean, I'll give him, you know, certain aspects of it, but. 300 was an original concept. He basically did a shot for shot remake of the comic book uh, or the graphic novel. And so I don't know. I, I, I think it's it, to be, to find pure cinematographers, you need to look like, at, you know, directors like the Coen brothers who, who implement Roger Deakins work. So, so I will, I, I, as much as I agree with you, I will say that I think it's great that Zack Snyder makes the films that he wants to make. It's his vision. It's what he thinks is going to be amazing. And he has a lot of fans that appreciate his work. And I think that's fantastic. Um, It is hard (laughs) for me to argue (laughs) the pros for him sometimes. I mean, I I like a couple of his movies quite a bit. You know, I I really enjoy the shit out of Dawn of the Dead. Me too. I really like 300. I really like Watchmen. Me too. Um, I enjoy Man of Steel quite a bit, more than most people do. And so uh, I I get it. I mean, as someone that has been on the receiving end of hating so much Zack Snyder, (laughs) I get it. You know, they're not all going to be bangers, but... Um, his <laughs> taste in music i swear to god we've talked about that on the show it's uh, horrendous yeah. he just needs to step away <laughs> and let somebody else take control of the fucking jukebox because it's not working out and it i i hate it but i i can appreciate that he wants to experiment and do his own thing and 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 you know we talk about this a lot of times <laughs> that when when you're watching a tarantino movie you know it's a tarantino movie you know when you're watching uh, a Ridley Scott movie, bam, you know, it's fucking Ridley Scott, whatever. You name a director and uh, there's a handful out there. Edgar Wright, that's another one. Yeah. <laughs> Three seconds into it, you're like, fuck, this is an Edgar Wright movie. Yeah. Um, you know immediately that it is a Zack Snyder movie. Yeah. Mostly because it's in slow motion. <laughs> no. <laughs> now you got to add on, out of focus. Oh, God. And, uh, and horrible music to that. But I, I can appreciate that he is sticking to his guns and making the movie that he wants to make. Uh, Todd Phillips is another one that makes the movie that he wants to make. They're, they're usually brilliant. I fucking love Todd Phillips. Mm-hmm. Um, like uh, Starsky and Hutch. That movie is so fucking funny. And it, I think it's talk about underrated comedies. And th- I think that is one of them. I, th- I think Starsky and Hutch is so fucking funny. Uh, I mean, I love um, Road Trip to Death. Mm-hmm. And I like the first Hangover. But um i honestly think that uh, starsky and hutch is one of his best movies ever and if you uh, haven't watched it lately check it out it's fucking hilarious i'll but, have to give it another go because it's been a long time since i've seen that oh my god it's so funny one one last thing on Zack snyder that pisses me off it, it was so funny when we were watching army of the dead all you kept saying is like this fucking asshole <laughs> you're like what an asshole but it's funny because it, you're, you're right because we were we were pretty much 
guessing what was happening. And then every little thing Snyder was trying to do, I'm like, oh, God, it was one giant eye roll in, in my opinion. So, yeah. It, yeah. And, and it was fun, though. Like, I mean, I yeah. wouldn't trade yeah. that night for anything. I, I thought it was so much fun to watch that movie with, you know, a dear friend and and laugh about it. Uh, if I were to watch it by myself, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't have had the same experience. And we had a lot of candy. So, <laughs> yes, lots and lots of candy. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But anyways, Roger Deakins is the greatest. So he he's really good. Oh, I mean, he's incredible. He went through his movies uh, a minute ago. Um, I really, really enjoy them. Um, Sicario, that's one oh of my, my favorites. God. Yes, Sicario is incredible. His camera work in that is is unbelievable. Skyfall, Blade Runner 2049, No Country for Old Men, 1917. He won the Oscar for 1917, I believe. Um, yeah, oh man, I forgot about, I always forget about Sicario and then I'm like, shit, that's right. It is yeah. so good. The camera I will work never forget Sicario. <laughs> It's my favorite movie of the year, every year, and it came out in 2015. <laughs> the, um, uh, Randy Van Dyke from Geek Legacy, he actually just got the camera that they used to shoot 1917. Um, it is a very expensive camera. It's like an $80,000 camera. Um, yeah, and so he's playing with it, got to put it together. He made this awesome introductory video for it. And uh, yeah, it's gorgeous. That's really cool. Yeah, but I mean, you know, we can talk about dialogue and, and music and, and actors, but... The it's really the the language of film can really be what drives the story. It can make or break the story. And Roger Deakins has figured out a way to to make you know this movie aside from the dialogue, take away all that stuff. It just it, it's captivating. You use that word captivating sometimes, mm-hmm. and I honestly think that it is his uh, his eye that really helps seal the deal. Oh and, man, uh, one of the best incredible. one of the best DPs out there, man. It's it's absolutely remarkable. So. Yeah, he's uh he was born in 1949 too, mind you. He's uh he's getting he's getting up there. He's an oldie. Um, okay, well, um, finally, this movie starts with a disclaimer that the film is based on a true story. Later, uh, not in the film, but later in the years passing, the Coens informed audiences that this was fabricated. What I want to know, Justin Cavender, does the based on a true story disclaimer ever change your mindset on how you view said movie? Um, I don't think so. I'm usually I usually take it with a grain of salt because they have to they have to Hollywood the movie, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, what could have been what is a guy and a girl in the movie could have been two dudes or two ladies, whatever. Um, you know, the characters are usually changed. Uh, something that that might have happened might sound cool but then when they shoot it it doesn't work or when they write it down they're like this isn't all that interesting how do we make this more interesting <laughs> so i try not to um to put too much stock in in the based on a true story uh comment but if it's like a biopic then that kind of changes things a little bit but in the case of fargo i remember thinking when it came out when i watched when it, when it said based on a true story when, when the movie was over i was like Fuck, I feel so sorry for these poor people. <laughs> that is nuts. Can you tell me there's really a Jerry Lundegaard out there? Oh, man. Um, and this was like, you know, very early stages of the internet. So it's not like I could like look it up and I couldn't go to a library and scroll through all the headlines of the newspaper and at, at the, the Brainerd Times and try to <laughs> find the right headline that would tell me what this was. So, um, yeah, I, I am usually intrigued by the, the based on a true story, knowing that there's some sliver of of truthness to it but i definitely uh don't take it as gospel yeah absolutely and i'm i mean i i think 
some of them like uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre with horror films. I, I think it, it plays a very important part in the horror element because then you're like, holy shit, you know, Leatherface might be running around Mount Vernon right now with the chainsaw. So um, <laughs> yeah, he's the Mount Vernon yeah. <laughs> chainsaw massacre. But see, okay, here's the difference. Now um, they did an interesting trick with with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It yeah. was it was written it was written or I'm sorry, read to us. the The title card is going up, and it's a voice that's telling us that this is a true story versus just reading it. You know, there's this this genuine concern in the narrator's voice that this is a, a horrifying ordeal and there was a survivor. Mm-hmm. And so that one technique alone can put that, that seed in your mind, like, holy shit, this, this happened. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's on the TV. It said it. Um, the, the remake of it does another good job with the, the, the police camera footage going down into like the basement and everything. The, the, the Polaroids that we've talked about a hundred times, you know, this collecting of evidence, um, was this man ever caught, um, and I think that that kind of adds a realness to it. When 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 Blair Witch came out, I thought I just saw three people get fucking murdered. <laughs> I was convinced when that movie ended, when it went to black, I was like, did I just watch a fucking snuff film? Like, what what did I just see? <laughs> I literally sat in the theater and waited to read that this story was, you know, fictitious and, you know, all characters resembling, you know, living persons is purely coincidental. I, I, and of course, that's the last fucking thing on the screen before it's over and the lights come on. But I sat there, Zach, in the theater waiting to make sure that this was not something that really happened. Oh, man. How crazy is that? I mean, I was like 18 years old, 19 right. years old. But I mean, it was, they acted like real assholes in the movie. Like, they could have easily been real people. It didn't seem like they were acting. It actually felt like they were, it was actual found footage of just, Three people that couldn't stand to be in the same forest with each other. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's it's funny because it's like the Coens basically telling people like, yeah, we're just going to do it because we can do it. I mean, right. <laughs> and and I wonder if people who did the Blair Witch thought the same thing. But I mean, a horror film, obviously, that ha- it had the effect intended to because you were like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm never going to go in the forest again because of all the witches that are out there. But I think that's so fascinating. I don't know if I've ever necessarily had that happen in a horror film because i usually don't take those serious like conjuring and things or the i was i was just looking up yeah. conjuring right now as you were talking because mm-hmm. yeah, that's all based on a true story or whatever yeah and i'm like is it <laughs> I, I know any any exorcism thing i think that's obviously faith-based so i don't know and and you know william freaking his uh his exorcist movie i I'm sure there's things. I'm sure there's things in history that, that have shown potential exorcisms, but I, I I doubt it. I'm I'm not gonna lose sleep over that kind of shit. But I totally get it. I mean, I see how scary the Blair Witch could have been. I wish I would have experienced it in theaters. I just was too young, unfortunately. People were puking from that movie. That's what I heard. Because the motion, the motion sickness. sickness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I never, I've never gotten motion sickness from a movie. I've gotten irritated. Like the second Born movie, there's a lot of... Like, <laughs> there's so much action. <laughs> yeah. like, what is going on? <laughs> I don't know anybody with all that shaking going on. Paul, still. Paul Greengrass needs to hold a camera better. So it's all Dude, crazy. <laughs> I just remember being irritated. I was like, fuck this movie, man. <laughs> Put it on a fucking like dolly or something I know. what the problem is give me some explosions some michael bay explosions <laughs> yeah. you know? like just because fucking born is running doesn't mean the cameraman has to run oh too. god it's jarring it's so <laughs> hard to watch 
<laughs> I agree. It's uh, yeah, it's very, very jarring. But get Roger Dickens in here. <laughs> there you go. Um, but yeah, man, that's uh, that's actually all I have to say. We said a lot, but it was worth it because this is one of the greatest movies of all time. Um, this question probably answers itself. But do you have any final thoughts or like what's your letter grade? Uh, so I give this movie an A plus across the board. This was my first honest to goodness. Uh, Coen Brothers film at the appropriate age and uh, absolutely love it. Again, I went in knowing nothing about it and I was treated to a masterpiece. This movie told me and showed me everything that a movie could be and I fucking loved it. And I think that it had a lot to do with watching it with my sister and you know her friend. We were just laughing at everything. I'd never heard somebody <laughs> from that part of the country speak before and just the yas and just the over-exaggeration of it. And he's a little guy, kind of funny looking. There were so many things that were happening. And even if like uh, Wade, when he's just like, yeah, you know, golfers. golfers. <laughs> Everything about that is just fucking funny. When the pol- nice police thing is shot in the head and it just the blood shoots out like oh a mountain. Oh my god! I've never seen anything like that before. That was nuts. And so I just I and when he gets shot in the face and then when he's just so mad when Steve Buscemi's so mad that he just starts unloading his gun on the guy and then he screams into the sky and then just starts kicking him too because he's just so irritated. I'm laughing. Something horrible just happened and I can't stop laughing. I think it's so fucking funny. And uh, and I and I love that. I love everything about this movie. It just uh, tickles my funny bone. And uh, again, probably the most viewed motion picture show I've ever seen. Oh, yeah, it's um, I agree, man. It's an A plus for me. It is a masterclass in filmmaking and screenwriting and acting. Um, I mean, give everyone the goddamn Oscar. Everyone was so great. There's not a wasted moment on, in this movie. And it's it's only an hour and 38 minutes. It's 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 perfect. It's like the length of this podcast. <laughs> I know it's quick. So, it's quick. Yeah, it goes by so quick. And it's 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 just important. They use a lot of good transitions in it, too. But yeah. Oh, man. A plus. Absolutely love this movie. I, I revisit it multiple times a year and um, I, it never gets old for me. So um, sweet. Is that it? Is that the show? That's it. Take us out. Sweet. Well, thank you so much for listening to the Don't Be Crazy podcast. Thank you to all of our listeners and friends who have made these past few years so memorable. Please remember to follow us on Twitter at DBCrazyPod, at EdgyArmo, and at ZachDale60. EdgyArmo always posts videos of slow-mo Zack Snyder scenes that he <laughs> loves the most, playing that Hallelujah in the background. So. <laughs> that does not the continuous uh, <laughs> Screw the universe. <laughs> where you can share your thoughts with us and we will discuss them on our show. Heck, you can even tell us what movie you think we should watch for our next episode. Please also be sure to check out the Geek Legacy podcast with David, Randy, and Justin, as well as the Pixelated podcast with Stephen K. James. Excited to talk about that one because E3 is coming up, right? Isn't that pretty soon? Yeah, next week. Hell yeah. I watched the Battlefield 2043 trailer today that was just basically a sizzle reel of explosions and so i'm waiting on the actual gameplay footage to make a decision but uh it looks it looks fun so we'll see but uh please don't be crazy thank you for listening thank you so much